We are in a sermon series called The Seven Letters, and this is The Seven Letters to the Churches of Revelation. And uh, Pastor Sean asked me to speak this weekend. If you're new to Journey Church, I'm Aaron Poor, the associate pastor here. And so this week, uh, we have made it to the letter to the church of Sardis. And this is going to be, this is going to be really good. But... <laughs> It is. Just trust me. Uh, but you guys know if you've been uh, here for any of these other messages, you know how we do this. We've, we've got this kind of little mini documentary series that we've been watching little excerpts of each week to give us a background and a foundation for whatever church we're looking at that week. And we have one for Sardis as well. So without any further ado, let's check it out. Located on a major highway connecting the Aegean coast to the east, Sardis was a stronghold city in ancient times. The citadel of Sardis was known for its military strength and described by some ancient historians as being, quote, the strongest place on earth. Now, Sardis became the capital of the Lydian Empire in the 7th century BC. The wealth of the city came from the fertile farmland outside the city, the Pactolus River, which contained gold dust, and more specifically, an alloy called electrum. Now, the Lydian Empire is said to have invented coinage, and the Lydian stator is famous for having been the earliest type of coin ever minted. During the first century, Sardis also had a theater that fit about 20,000 people, a stadium for about 12,000, an aqueduct, and temples to Roman emperors such as Augustus and Tiberius. However, as impressive as this ancient city was, John had some stern warnings for the Christians who lived here. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Revelation 3, 1 through 3. In this letter, the Christians have a reputation for being alive yet dead, and were then commanded to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Now, some scholars have suggested that this language pointed to the destructive earthquake of 17 AD, which totally destroyed the city. Sardis's name and reputation survived, but the city was destroyed. Furthermore, the earthquake happened in the middle of the night when the people were asleep and the residents apparently had not paid attention to the tremors leading up to this massive earthquake. All right, so that gives you a little bit of a background. And uh, I have to say, for those of us who speak uh, periodically, we have a little bit of a benefit or an advantage as opposed to Pastor Sean, who speaks regularly on a weekly basis, because, you know, I've been aware that I'm going to be speaking on this for a few weeks now. And I say that because I've been looking forward to this. I have a very, very encouraging message for some of you. Really, I think, honestly, for many of you. And here it is. You may be thinking you're alive when you're actually dead. Isn't that encouraging? We could just dismiss right now and you just have a great rest of the day. No, no, listen, let me put it a different way and you'll see what I'm saying. Because what's, what's incredible is this. You may, in your, what you might call your normal Christian life, you may have been experiencing something that is not real life in Christ just yet. So maybe you've been going along, I know what it's like, I go to church, you know, I serve, I'm a part of a small group, and, uh, you know, I pray and I read my Bible, and you're doing all these things, you're checking all these excellent, wonderful boxes that you should check. But maybe, just maybe, you haven't even scratched the surface of what real life 
in Jesus is. And it's possible. So today I'm talking to the born again. I'm talking to the saved. I'm talking to you've given your life to Jesus. But there is a chance that there is still a form of lifelessness inside. Even though you've been born again. And what God is offering you today and compelling you into is to come deeper into real life. Now, there are also some of you, maybe many of you, who you know what I'm talking about because you have experienced it in the past. But you're just not, if I can say it this way, you're just not feeling it anymore. You're just not experiencing it the way that you used to. And I heard a pastor say one time, if you can point to any point in your life where you were more on fire, passionate for God than you are right now, then you are in a type of a backslidden state. And so the church of Sardis is a church that kind of fits that bill. So what I want to ask you to do today as we go through this message is I want you to ask yourself, just between you and you and God, I want you to ask yourself, is this me? Now, am I really experiencing real life in Jesus, or do I have a form of lifelessness inside me? Is there more? Am I not living the fullness of what God has for me? Just kind of ask yourself that question as we take a little deep dive into the church of Sardis's state that they're in, and uh, because if that is the case, today's a great day. Because God is calling you into something deeper. And when God calls you into something deeper, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So the church of Sardis, the church that's spiritually dead. Now, what I want to do here, Revelation chapter 3, that first part of it there, talking about Sardis, it goes into a lot of different things. And it's all very good. And I would recommend you take some time and read through that whole passage But I want to zero in and dig really deep into the one primary summary statement. So Revelations 3.1, it says, and this is Jesus talking. If you go back to the first part of Revelation, it establishes this is Jesus speaking to these churches. It says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Okay, that's Jesus talking to this church. So our first point we want to deal, deal with here today is this. Present death implies past life. Present death implies past life. Now, this is kind of a common sense, obvious statement, but it has some real significance when you're talking about what we're talking about today. So if you have something that is classified as dead, like Jesus did with the church of Sardis, then you have to understand at one point it must have been alive. So like the chair that you're sitting on, we don't call that a dead chair, right? Because it's never been alive. There was never a point where it passed from life to death. It's just an inanimate object. But if I talk about I've got a tree in my backyard that's dead, then I'm implying that I used to have a tree in my backyard that was alive. Well, that is meaningful when you apply it to something like a church. And you say, this is a dead church. So a dead church is not a small church necessarily. A dead church is not necessarily a young church. It's not even necessarily an immature church. A dead church is a church that uh, once had life, and doesn't have life anymore. So um, you could also actually categorize a dead church as a sleeping church because, if again, if you go a little further into Revelation 3, Jesus' call to the church in Sardis is to wake up, okay? So we can kind of use those terms interchangeably, but Jesus calls it a dead church, so we're sticking with that. So here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where it becomes really real for me and for you. Because what we're saying about a church or the church of Sardis can be said about an individual believer. So all this stuff we're talking about 
can apply to you. You and your relationship with God. You and whether or not you're walking in real life or not. This can apply to you. So we have to figure this out today. Are you experiencing life or do you just look alive on the outside? We got to figure that out. Because if you're not experiencing real life, you've got to get there. And don't, don't waste another day of your life not walking in the fullness of new life in Christ. So we can learn a lot about our own walk with God by looking at what's happening in the church of Sardis. So think about what Jesus said. Jesus is talking to the church of Sardis. He calls it a dead church. And he says two things in this one little statement we're looking at here. He says, I know your reputation. And so Sardis had a reputation. If you were to go there and ask about the church, people would say, oh, yeah, I know about them. Yeah, they, yeah they've got meetings on the weekends. Yeah, they've got a ministry to uh, the poor people. Yeah, oh, I think they do small groups. Yeah, they do that. They've got a pretty good worship team. They've got, so Sardis is, Jesus says, I know your reputation. And you have a reputation. And Jesus also says, I know your works. And so he's pointing to two things. He's pointing to the fact that there's stuff going on. It's not like they are fully dead, uh, just like a husk of a building where nothing goes on, cobwebs on the ceiling or anything like that. There's an appearance of life. Okay? And there's a reputation of life. So if you went there and you looked on the outside, it would seem like, okay, there's life there. And if you were to talk to people in the community, they would say, I think there's probably life there. But Jesus is saying, you look alive on the surface, but you're not fooling me. And so I want us to continually pull this focus back in on us and ask ourselves, does this apply it's not going to apply to everybody in here, you know, but I think to some of us it will. So the, the Sardis church knew how to appear to be lifelike. Does that make sense? They knew what that looked like. They knew how to do it. They knew how to have a meeting or a ministry or whatever the case may be that appeared as if there was life. They knew how to do that. But Jesus says, you're not alive. You're dead. You're dead. So the church of Sardis, and this goes back to our point right now, present death implies past life. The church of Sardis had been alive at one time. Because if it's dead now, it must have been alive at one time. What that means is they know what life looks like. They know what life sounds like. And they know how to act like some church that is alive. Now that could apply to you and me too. You may know what life looks like. You may know what life sounds like. And you may know how to act like someone who is alive. But death imitating life is still death. And it's kind of a disturbing type of death, right? Think about old 60s B-movie zombie movies or something, right? It's just not pleasant. And actually, uh, like I said, having a couple weeks to prepare this message, I even <laughs> took a little time and started working on a sermon slide for this message today that we're not using, but I'll put it up anyway. <laughs> the living dead. And so that's kind of what I'm referring to the church of Sardis as the living dead, right? So there's, there's, there's lifelessness trying to appear like it's got life. But it doesn't. And so it's the living dead. That's this, what these, this church is. So we're talking about that today. And this can apply, like I said, to absolutely any of us in this room. It can apply to any of us, to me, to you. We can go through the motions of life no matter what it is. We can, and when I say the motions of life, what I mean is we can go through the motions of new life whether that means reciting creeds and catechisms and things that you learned from ancient church fathers, or whether that means 
going to all-night prayer and worship meetings that you picked up from being in the charismatic church or the Pentecostal church. What I'm saying is it runs the whole scope, the whole spectrum of Christian experience. Any of those things can be life-giving at one time and can be uh, lifeless at another time, depending on whether or not you have life inside you. Does that make sense? So you can do all those things. You can go through all of those motions and do all those activities, and they're all good activities. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But just the fact that you can do them does not in and of itself mean that there's life. They can be devoid of life. So here's the important question. Here's what we need to know. Really one of two questions. How does this happen? Because if this is, if, if you're really doing what I asked you to do and you're kind of performing a little self-test on yourself today and you're saying, am I really experiencing real life? I mean, honestly, be honest with yourself. You know, am I really experiencing real life in Jesus? And if the answer is no, you need to know, how did this happen? How did I move from a place of life in Jesus to this place where I am now, where I still know how to do all the stuff, but the feeling is not there anymore. It's gone. The passion is gone. The flame has kind of grown to, uh, or, you know, devolved down to a flicker. How did that happen? So the question is, how do you move from life to death? How does that happen? And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now. So you move from life to death when you continue to practice your faith without continuing to feed your spirit. You move from life to death when you continue to practice your faith, which you should do, but without continuing to feed your spirit. I had a guy here last night in the, in the service last night that came up to me afterwards who goes out and does these crazy, like, marathons in the mountains, these, like, extreme marathons, you know, where he has to train and train and train to get ready for these big marathons. And he said that point that you, you made about you have to, you know, you move from life to death when you practice your faith, but you don't feed your spirit. He said it's like when someone is training for one of these big events, you can go out and do intense, intense exercise to, to train yourself up for the event. But if you're not taking in a massive amount of calories, your body will actually start feeding on itself. And it won't feed on the fat, it'll feed on the muscle. And so he was explaining to me this process and how he has to be really careful about his calorie intake that it's enough when he's doing the level of intense training that he's doing. It's, the, it's just like this. You can practice your faith. You can do the stuff, but you have to feed your spirit or death will start to creep in. So when here's kind of where we're going with this. When faith is reduced to a discipline only, okay? Now, discipline should be part of our faith. But when faith is reduced to a discipline only, you begin to become spiritually anemic and you begin to become lifeless. And when that happens, and I actually, I want to make this point and put a slide up with this. When that happens, your life in Jesus is severely affected. Relationship is reduced to routine. Love is reduced to liturgy. And knowing God is reduced to knowing about God. And that's a hideous substitution, a horrible substitution. And it leads to a form of godliness with no power, no life, and no love. And you ask, well, what is this whole thing of real life in Jesus? I mean, what's the difference? You know, why can't I just do the things I do and go to church and read my Bible? Uh, what are you even talking about real life? What I'm talking about is supernatural power, supernatural life, and supernatural love. These are all things that are bigger than you. These are all things that you can't generate by yourself. This is a type of power, a type of life, and a type of love that you don't have the capacity to create or drum up. But when you are alive in Jesus, 
he comes along and he gives supernatural power, supernatural life, and supernatural love to you. And you walk in those things and you operate in those things and you go out and you do the will of God. That's real life. So it doesn't matter if you're reciting creeds and catechisms or if you're shouting during worship and praying for the sick, these all can be devoid of life if you're just going through those motions. So you can appear to have life on the outside while you're lifeless on the inside. And I realized um, morning by morning when I would get up and have my coffee and look out my back window that in my backyard I have a pretty good analogy of what this looks like. To be something that once had life, that went through a transition where it had death on the inside but still appeared lifelike on the outside, and then finally went all the way to the point that where the death that was on the inside came on the outside, and now it just doesn't even look alive at all. But you know how it works around here. I shot a video. So I want to show you this analogy. Let's go ahead and check it out. So talking about how the church in Sardis is a dead church obviously implies that at one time it must have been alive. There must have been something happening there that indicated real life. Because you can't have something that's dead presently without having something that was alive in the past. It's just like this tree behind me right here. This is an ash tree on our property and it is dead. It's as dead as it can be. But the fact that we have a dead ash tree in the present means that we must have had a living ash tree in the past. So the presence of something that is currently dead, like this tree, means that in the past there was something at one time that was alive. Now, when we bought this property seven years ago, this tree, it kind of tricked us. It looked like it was alive. Uh, it had leaves on it, you know, it wasn't losing uh, big branches off of it, and it wasn't as just nasty looking as it is right now. But what was happening even then is death was on the inside of this tree. There were parasites inside of it. They were eating it away. And eventually what was on the inside came on the outside. And now it's obvious to anybody that walks up to it, this is a dead tree. But at one time it was alive. So just like that, the church in Sardis is a dead church, but there must have been a time when there was life. Now let's take a closer look at this tree. Now, you'll notice that this tree has some green leafy vines growing on it, right? And it may appear that there is some life. You look at this tree, it's like, oh, look at that, there's green leaves on it. But this tree is not going to fool me, and I don't think it's going to fool you either. The tree is still dead. The tree is still dead. And you can take something that no longer has any life in it and surround it with living things, but it doesn't change the fact that inside, in, in, in its core, it's dead. It's not producing life. It's not producing fruit. And this tree is no longer producing fruit on its own, on its own at all. There's no more leaves. It's a dead tree. Just because it's surrounded by something living, it itself is not living. And if you step back further and you look at the trees on my property that are alive, you can clearly see the difference between a living tree and a dead tree. Now take a look at a living, healthy tree. You can see the difference. So I'm standing here in front of a tree that's, that's healthy, it's, it's in decent shape, and you can see, you can look at the branches. I mean, they've got these nice green leaves on it and everything. And Jesus talks about uh, how life moves through us and he uses this analogy of vines and branches. And, and he talks about how our life comes through our connection to him. Listen to this. John 15, uh, chapter, or John chapter 15, uh, verses 4 through 6. It says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. We get our life through our connection with Jesus. So that relationship that we have with God gives us life. It's just like this branch right here is living and alive because it's connected to the trunk of the tree. The minute that I separate that branch from the rest of the tree, that branch dies and it withers up. And it's not good for anything but firewood at that point. And so our life comes from our connection and our relationship with God. And subsequently, it connects us to the whole rest of the tree too. So you get connection with the rest of the kingdom and the family of God. But our life comes through Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. And so if we want to stay alive, we got to stay connected with the giver of life. That tree is teaching us today. That's right. The, and the, the biggest takeaway that I got from that guy talking was that you can even surround yourself with life. And that might be one of the most deceptive things for you to lead you to believe that you are experiencing the fullness of the life that Jesus has for you when you're not. You can surround yourself with life but still not have the connection that Jesus is talking about in John 15. So you can go to places like Journey Church where there's a lot of living people. You can go to a real life group and be around that. And again, every time I go and, and, and mention these examples of things, uh, I want you to know these are things you should be doing. So I'm not, you know, knocking down any of these things, like stop doing that. No, these are all good things. What I'm trying to say, though, is these things do not create life. They lead to life. So if you're in a state of lifelessness, it will make you feel better to be around life, but it won't change you until you awaken that life inside of you. So the living dead still have a hunger for life. They are attracted to the living. Now, I want to talk to those of you who are in that category of, I think I used to have more life and something changed. I want to talk specifically to you just for a second because I said they're attracted to the living. So what happens a lot of time is they go back to the last time they experienced life and they do their best to recreate the circumstances. Think about that. Someone who's following Jesus, but they've got a state of lifelessness inside, they're still attracted to life, even if they don't have it burning inside. And so what they'll do is they'll go back to the last time they experienced real life, and they'll do their best to recreate the circumstances. Now just bear with me. Why can't we do those songs like we used to? You know those older songs? Those were anointed. Those were anointed. Why can't we have services like we used to back then? Those were powerful. Those were powerful services. Remember when that guest speaker came in and all that stuff happened and why can't we do that again? What's happening there? That person is looking back to a time when they experienced real life. They experienced an encounter with God in worship, singing those old songs. They experienced the presence of God in the way those services used to be back in the day. They had a powerful time in the presence of God when that guest speaker came and all that stuff happened. They're looking back to a time when they experienced real life and their desire is pure. They want to experience real life again, but the only thing they know to do in the state that they're in is to turn back to the last time they experienced and go back to that place. The only problem is 
Why do you think they call a move of God a move of God? Because God moves. God moves. And God moves on. And someone that's walking in real life looks at the past in a different way than someone who's not experiencing real life. Let's put this up on the screen. New life sees the past as something to learn from. New life sees the past as something to learn from. The living dead see the past as something to live in. So, are we saying that those old songs are no good anymore? Those old services are no good anymore? No, not at all. Not at all. On the contrary, those of us who are walking in real life in Jesus are looking at the testimony of what God has done through the ages. We're looking at what what the church has gained in each move of God. We look back at Azusa Street and we see what happened there. We look back at moves of God, uh, you know, healing movements. We look back at the Jesus people movement. When all these young people came to Jesus, we look at back what happened in the charismatic movement and all these things. And we learn and we take what God's done and then we move forward with God. That's what new life does. But lifelessness, because you're hungry for life, you want life, but you're not seeing it anywhere right now in your present situation. You turn around and you look at the last time you experienced it and you go back to that place. The only problem with that strategy is God's not there anymore. God's here and he's doing something here. And the beautiful thing is, is God is incorporating all those things that happened in the past. They're not gone. They're just included in what God's doing now. But this is how new life sees the past versus how the living dead see the past. Because life doesn't come from routines, rituals, disciplines, or doctrines, as, as effective as they might be. That's not where life comes from. So we ask the question, how do you move from life to death? Let's ask a more important question now. How do you move from death to life? So if you've been doing what I was asking you to do and kind of testing yourself and evaluating yourself, seeing where you're at, and you feel like this is, I'm okay, you know, I'm, I'm holding my hand up. Yeah, this is me then let's figure out how to move from a state of lifelessness to real life. Because Jesus is holding this out right now saying, I've got great things for you here and now today. You just need to receive them, step into them, walk in them. So this next point kind of answers that question. The Spirit brings life. The Spirit brings life. Now there's, again... There's a lot of good things you can do in the Christian life. But what brings life is the Spirit. And this is what Jesus teaches. John 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And for anyone who is doing that thing of looking back to the past to try to go back to the last time you experienced life, The message here is you can't recreate in the flesh what was done in the spirit. The reason there was life in those things that you experienced is the spirit was there. The reason there was life when you sang that song, you know, when I sang shout to the Lord 20 years ago or whatever it might have be, is that in that day, in that time you were singing that song, the spirit was there. Now, I still sing shout to the Lord. I'm not, I'm not knocking that song. But do you understand what I'm saying? The reason there was life is the Spirit created life. The Spirit was there. You can't recreate in the flesh what was done in the Spirit. So this is something I'm passionate about because it hits home for me. It's real for me. I'm not being, uh, this isn't just some academic topic for me In fact, when Pastor Sean asked me, do you want to take any particular uh, one of the seven churches? I said, I would like Sardis, please. Because I related 
to Jesus' message to the church in Sardis. A few months ago, as I was praying, um, and I, I wasn't in this state of the living dead that I'm talking about or lifelessness, but I was moving in a direction in my relationship with God that was less and less healthy without me realizing. And so God began to, to explain to me, your relationship with me is becoming more like a business relationship. Now this holds true and can be a danger for any person, especially any person who is involved in any type of ministry. And I'm not talking about you're on staff at a church. I mean any type of ministry, whatever you might do, even if it's like ministry to your neighborhood. If you have a passion to serve God and you have a passion to see people closer to God in whatever way that manifests in your life, there is a, a warning that I would give to you that you be careful to not do what I was starting to do. And so the Holy Spirit says, your, your, your relationship with me is becoming more like a business relationship. It's not like we're losing our relationship, but it's changing into more of a business relationship. And what does that look like? Let me put this up on the screen. It says this, I seek God so that. I seek God so that I can be a better husband and father. I seek God so that, in my particular case, I can be a more effective worship leader so that I can get equipped to heal the sick or so that I can be a stronger leader. I seek God for these things. Now, you notice everything on that list is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. And a lot of times you'll hear this, this uh, quote that the good is the enemy of the great. Well, this is kind of like that. So the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, if you were able to check all those boxes and you felt like you had arrived or whatever that means in each of those areas, what is left? What's left in our relationship? And so it radically shifted the way I approach God. And I began focusing on a simple approach of just knowing God. And while I still brought petitions to God and prayed for people and prayed for breakthrough and did all those things that I was doing before, I started spending a lot more time just sitting in the presence of God. That's it. Not because I had some idea that if I sit in his presence, maybe this person will get healed. Or if I sit in his presence, maybe I'll get a revelation that'll make me a better worship leader. No, none of that. I started sitting in his presence and just thinking about how incredible he is, how good he is, how faithful he's been in my life, how loving he is to me, how his mercy for me is new every morning, even when I do something stupid. He's still merciful, gives me grace, and I just began to let myself become overwhelmed with the goodness of God. And I found that this wonderful um, thing would, would happen that the more that I drew close to God, the more I wanted to draw close to God. And it was almost like, if you can imagine like a black hole that has this immense gravity, gravitational pull, that the closer you get to it, the stronger the pull is. And then I started realizing, this is how it's supposed to work. Our foundation and our core uh, is to be in relationship with him. And I'm saying this as someone who has spent a lot of time studying prayer. Years and years, I've read stacks of books and heard many, many messages, stacks of books about how to pray. I've read books about solitude. I've read books about monasticism and mysticism, contemplation, contemplative prayer, and they were all good and they were all helpful. But what God was wanting from me was just for me to know him in experience. Does that make sense? And I pray through the Lord's Prayer every day. I mean, every, I, mean I might miss one here and there. But the, the, the plan is every day I pray through the Lord's Prayer because it's a perfect model for how to pray. 
And when Jesus was asked, how should we pray? This is what he told us. And it's a template. You know, you start off here, then you move to this, then you move to that. And I do that every day. But it's no longer, that just is a part of what I'm doing. And that's not the only way I relate to God. And let's make it real for everybody here today. Let's imagine, for those of you who are married, let's imagine that you go to your spouse once we get out of church here today, and you sit down with your spouse and you say, listen, I am going to make a commitment to you that in order to have more effective communication in our marriage, at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m., I will make a series of statements and ask you a series of questions. (laughs) But then that's it. You would have maybe an effective communication on one level, but you would not have a healthy relationship. And the thing is, is that when we approach God and we try to relate to God through just structure and discipline, and we just check off boxes, you understand anybody can do that. The people that are full of life can do that, and the people, people that have no life, they can all do that. You can check off boxes. You can have disciplines. You can get a Bible reading plan. You can go to, you know, a small group. You should do all that stuff. But if that's all there is, then there's not a real relationship because those structures and disciplines don't create relationship. They lead to relationship. And the relationship happens, this, who gives life? The Spirit. The Spirit gives life. So connection and relationship with the Spirit of life brings Life, And that's what we're talking about today, because we don't want to be the church of Sardis. So 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6 says this, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So again, I'm going to say it again. Discipline, routine, the motions that we go through are, are helpful And they are effective, but they are tools that are meant to lead us into relationship. And so here's my last point. Relationship, and this is, relationship is God's desire. This is the hardest thing for the human mind or the natural mind to really truly grasp and understand. Because after all, who are we talking about? We're talking about the first and the last the Alpha, the Omega, the Ancient of Days, the Most High God, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name that is named. That's who we're talking about. Who wants to have a close personal relationship with you. How? It doesn't make any sense. Why? Why? I mean, when we really begin to understand who he is, in his majesty and his holiness, and then we hear that he specifically wants to have a close personal relationship with you, how do we wrap our minds around that? But it is the truth. It is true. So we either just believe it and receive it and we step into it, or we have a wall that keeps us from stepping into that. Any of you who have been like raised in a denominational kind of a background or tradition, you might be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And all it is, it's just a simple thing. It's an old document that's actually a really effective tool that teaches people about their identity and, and God's identity and nature. And the first question, it's a series of questions and answers. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? So in other words, What is man's purpose for even existing at all? You know, if you boil it down to one core thing, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Does that mean you're you're still going to have a ministry? You're still going to raise a family? You're still going to get married. You're still going to have a job. You're still going to live life. 
But the core reason that you exist is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. That's why you're sitting here. That's why you exist. And at that core is the relationship that brings life. And that's why if you get away from that, you begin to move into lifelessness. Revelations 4.11 kind of talks about the reason why God did what he did. King James says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. Why did God create all this stuff? Why did God create all all of creation and and people and for his pleasure? Because he wanted to. Because at God's heart, God wants to be a father with a family. God wants relationship. Life comes through relationship and connection with God. Now, in in the tree video that we just watched, I talked a little bit about John 15, vines and branches. Listen to, uh, listen to what that passage says in the Message Bible. It says, live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you're joined with me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. So here's the thing, and the band can go ahead and come back up. Our life is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. And if we want life, if we want that, if you're sitting here today and you're like, okay, that's me. I used to be more alive than I am. If you want life, you have to orient yourself in that direction. You have to choose to pursue Jesus. You have to choose. It's, it's intentional. It's strategic. And choosing to pursue Jesus might mean, depending on who you are and what's going on in your life, might mean not choosing to pursue other things. I don't know. It doesn't really, we don't even need to get into those details because if your heart is set after Jesus, then you're just going to go after Jesus and whatever, uh, whatever ends up on the, the altar ends up on the altar because you're going after him like there's nothing else. Seeking God is a decision. It's an action. It's intentional. Uh, Hebrews 11.6 says that he rewards those who diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. Have you ever thought about what is the reward? Well, we can figure that out with logic. What is it that you're diligently seeking? Him. What is the reward? Him. He's the reward. So this is one of the most powerful promises that I I believe in the whole Bible. Because it's promising you that if you seek God diligently, you will be rewarded with Him. What's better than that? Nothing. What treasure is greater than that? Nothing. Nothing. And when we begin to see that He is the ultimate goal. He's the ultimate destination and he's the ultimate reward. Then we start diving deeper and deeper. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things, not on earthly things. So we diligently seek God. We set our hearts where Jesus is and we set our minds on things above not on earthly things. So let me just close by telling you this. I mean, to sum things up here, you can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can do your daily devotional, you can serve when opportunities arise, you can be a part of a real life group and still not be moving into a deeper relationship with God. And like I've been saying all morning, all those things are critically important. I'm not saying just not do any of those things. Even the Bible, you realize we weren't meant to have a relationship with the book. We were meant to have a relationship with the author. 
And the book is given to us to lead us to the author. That's the purpose. That's where life is. And so if you want relationship, you have to pursue it like you genuinely want it. And when that happens, I'm speaking from experience, it's going to have an effect on the way you spend your time. I'm not calling out the way any of you spend your time at all. I'm just saying, if you make a decision, I'm going for Jesus. He's what I want. It will affect the way you spend your time. It's going to affect the choices that you make. Some people are going to think you're going overboard. And they're going to tell you that you need to be more balanced. But they're wrong. They're wrong. So there is an intense desire, an intense desire that is supposed to be in the heart of every follower of Jesus to want more and more and more of him. And so here's what I want to do. I, I want to I want to close this out with words from the Apostle Paul. And let me ask you to stand up because we're going to worship one more time. And let me read this to you. It says in Philippians 3, 8 through 9, it says, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've put aside all else, counting it worth less than nothing in order that I can have Christ. Father, today we are making a decision and a declaration that you are what we want. Lord, we're, we're coming to you right now and we are admitting that the cares of this life and circumstances that we're in have all wrestled for our attention and our focus and that there have been many times that we've gotten off track and we've gotten caught up in other things. And then when we turn around and we look at our relationship with you, we have not invested ourselves in that. And that as a result of that, there's not as much life inside of us as there should be. But today, we repent of that. Lord, today we make a decision. It's you that we want, God. And if we were to lose everything and have you, we would have everything. Jesus, you are more than enough. You are our all-sufficiency, and we are going for you with everything we have. And so, God, I pray that as we sing this last song, by your Spirit, just do a work in our hearts, Lord God, right now, and awaken life in Jesus' name.